Uh, today's scripture is from Titus verses 15 and 16. Titus 15 and 16. To the pure, all things are pure, but to those who are defiled and unbelieved, nothing is pure, but both their minds and their conscience are defiled. They profess to know God, but by their deeds they defy him, I mean deny him, being detestable and disobedient and worthless for any good deed. Good evening. It is good to see you tonight. We are, as always, glad to, to see you, glad to be here, very thankful to God who has blessed us yet again. That passage in Titus, we're going to come back to that. That is a good thought, though, to use for some of the things we'll say tonight. I thought I would get this sermon in in one session. You see how that went. So I already had another planned, and so we'll have to circle back to that one and continue our thoughts from this morning. Um, at the risk of people not talking to me anymore when they leave the building, I'll share with you a story that I heard this morning. Um, and that is, uh, as this couple was leaving, the brother shook my hand and he said, that was a really good sermon. I really appreciate it. I tried to make sure my wife heard every word. <laughs> she had actually passed a few steps, so she only caught the tail end of that. But she came back and said, I didn't ask your opinion. And what that told me is they're really listening. <laughs> We're short on application, but the listening we, we got down. So we really appreciate that. This morning, we talked about some practical tips for relationships, for anger. And if I didn't spell it out, I'd mean by that all relationships. Obviously, it has bearing in marriage, but in parenting and in friendships and in brothers and sisters in our relationship, these things apply. We have to be Christians, not in word only, but in deed and in truth. We have to be like Jesus. Jesus also got angry, and he didn't sin, though, and so we cannot either, and we need to continually behave like Jesus. So this morning we talked about don't get historical, uh, listen well, and then talk. Don't be hypocritical, and don't be hypocritical is the four things we noticed this, even, this morning. We'll know four more this evening, and again, it's time, uh, maybe next Sunday morning we'll finish up with four more. Tonight, we'll just jump right in as if we were continuing the thought, and that is, if you have your Bibles, notice John chapter 7 and verse 24. You can count this as number 5 or 1, however you're numbering, but here is the point. When you are angry, when you are fighting, as we sometimes do, when that occurs, don't judge motives. Don't judge a person's motive. Jesus is the one being judged in John chapter 7, and as always, they were questioning his devoutness, his faithfulness to the law, his breaking of the Sabbath, and a host of other things. And Jesus says this in John 7 and verse 24, do not judge according to appearance, but judge righteous judgments. We said this morning that God is not against judging. He's against hypocritical judging. But as you can see here, he enjoins judging. We have to judge. We have to discern between this and that. We have to decide this is good, this is bad. Let's not do that. Paul would even add, this is excellent, Philippians chapter 1. And so discernment and judging, that's not the problem. But here's another way you could do it wrong, and that is you could judge unrighteously. Judge righteously judgments. Judge in matters of right. The Bible enjoins upon us the necessity to think and reason correctly. And 
we could do it wrong. And in fights and arguments, this is often the case. The truth is, we cannot read hearts. 1 Samuel 16, 7, God says to Samuel, Look not on his appearance, for I have rejected him. For man, for the Lord seeth not as man seeth. For man looketh on the outward appearance, but the Lord looketh on the heart. We cannot read hearts. We can read fruit, Jesus said in Matthew 7. By their fruits you will know them. What that means is we can know what somebody did. Well, we can see it. There, you did that. Got you. But we don't know why they did it. And sometimes in these fights and in this anger, we assign a meaning to it. We judge the motivation behind the action. Don't assume that you know why somebody did something. And don't assume the worst, which often happens in relationship. The world surely is full of wicked people. We understand that. But generally, people are better than we give them credit for. This is one of the explanations for why people get taken advantage of. Have you ever noticed how many times people get lured in and sucked in and taken advantage of? I would urge that's because people generally tend toward goodness. And as a result of that, they're open to be deceived by those who are not. That's the general bent, I would urge, of humanity. It develops in our disposition, aims toward goodness. And in Ecclesiastes chapter 7 and verse 29, Solomon says, This only have I found, that God has made man upright, but they have sought out many devices or engines, or man has created a lot of things to get himself into. That's absolutely true. But God made him upright. Generally speaking, family is not trying to hurt you. Generally speaking, your spouse does not do things with the intent of harming you. It may have been the case that you were harmed, but the intentionality behind it generally is not there. And when you're judging this way, you assign the reason. I know why you did that. You did that to spite me. You did that to hurt me. You said that to get at me. Well, I did do it. I did say it. But never once did I think I'm going to do this to hurt you. Never entered my mind. But when you judge unrighteously, you assign the meaning. Typically speaking, brothers and sisters are not trying to hurt each other. Well, you didn't see me. You didn't look at me. You didn't say hello. True, true, true. I didn't say hello. I came into the building, looked your way, and from appearance, it looked like I was looking directly at you. And then you're just going to turn your head like you didn't see me. I really didn't see you. Honestly, I didn't see you. I did look in your direction. You got me. And it does look like I was looking at you. I got you. But I never once thought about you. Hard to believe, but I never had you in my mind. I was actually thinking about something, looking at another person, something on my mind. I was just aimed your direction. This is what I mean. Don't judge motives. Here's the key takeaway. People often project their thoughts onto others. And it looks like this. Since I would have done X in the same situation, I believe you did it. Well, just because I would have done it doesn't mean you would have done it. I should not project onto you what I would do in the similar situation. I should wait, find more detail, maybe even ask you why you did what you did. Number next, in this anger, frustration, and these fights, be honest. Romans chapter 12 
in verse number 17 and talk about a practical chapter of living the Christian life. Romans chapter 12, someone has called it the little Bible. It has within this one chapter so many admonitions of encouragement to faithfulness and these different scenarios on how we're to act toward God, toward self, and toward others. And in Romans chapter 12 and verse number 17, Paul says, Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. I believe the King James will say, Provide things honest in the sight of all men. Be honest when you're having these fights. Admit that you're wrong if you are. Just be honest. We have a saying, if you mess up, fess up. Own it. Be willing and able to admit that you're wrong. Be honest about it. Don't make excuses. Don't justify bad behavior. Harsh, critical judgments, meanness, rudeness. Don't shift the blame to others. If you did it, you did it. And sometimes when people are called out in this fashion, they just did it, said a hurtful thing, did a mean thing. They get caught on it, and instead of owning it, they say something like this, look what you made me do. <laughs> they say something like, well, if you had enough fill in the blank, then I wouldn't have. Friends, this is very poor with regards to how we behave one toward another. It's not the case that somebody else is to blame for your words and your actions. It's not the case that someone else is to blame. It is your temper. And self-control is to be added to everybody's faith. 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse number 6, when we're adding things to our faith, one of those things is temperance, patience, or self-control. That's what we're to add. They're your words. You chose them. You said it. Now, if you didn't mean to say it the way it came out, admit that. Own that. Apologize if necessary. But don't make an excuse. Don't justify yourself. Be honest about it. We don't have to read far into the Bible before we see this action employed and it fail. In fact, it's so early in the Bible that we really won't even count Genesis 1 and 2 because that's the creation account in chapter 1 and with some more details in chapter 2. We haven't even had interaction with humanity one toward another until we get to chapter 3. And the first time men and women, or a man and a woman, interact with each other and do something wrong and get called out, the very first time Adam says it's Eve's fault. The woman you gave to be with me, she gave me other fruit and I did eat. What we should learn is that that has never worked in human history. God said no the first time it was tried, the very first time. He's not changed his position on this. If you did it, own that, admit that, and the sooner you do, the sooner we can move on. Here's the key takeaway. Self-justification after wrongdoing is lying. I couldn't think of another way to say it. I couldn't think of another way to soften it. I tried to say something like I was thinking about saying, well, to me, in my opinion, I couldn't come up with that. No, I can't think of another way to describe it. Adam is lying. It's not Eve's fault. He's self-justifying himself, blaming her for his actions. And eventually he owns it by saying, and I did eat. If you said it, don't justify that. 
Don't make it be somebody else. They're your words. They're your thoughts. It's your mind, and you said it. If you did it, you did it. Own that, and the quicker you do, quicker we can move on. Be honest. Number three, Philippians chapter 2 and verse number 5, if you have your Bibles and you'd be turning, be a servant. Different circumstances in life never stop us from being Christians. Sometimes people act like the circumstance they're in determines whether or not they're going to be like Christ. It's just not true. We don't have an option based on circumstances as to whether or not we'll be like Jesus. That's not the way it works. You know when you're supposed to be like Jesus every day of your life. You know when you're supposed to be like Jesus every course through your life, in every situation in your life. There's never a time when you and I get a break from being like Jesus. And sometimes, given the circumstances, people act as if, well, in this dynamic, I'm free too. Do what? Behave like a child of the devil? You are not free. In no situation do you get to cast off Christ and behave like someone who doesn't belong to him. There is no dynamic. Be a servant. When? When you're angry and when you're fighting. Philippians chapter 2 and verse number 5, the Bible enjoins, have this attitude in yourselves, which is also in Christ Jesus. Sometimes when you're reading the Bible, you take a passage like this, and you, it's very easy to say, well, to have the mind of Christ, and then you can just start enumerating good qualities that Christ had. You, you could say, well, Christ was gracious. I need to have that mindset. Christ was merciful. I need to have that mindset. Christ was obedient. I need to have that mindset. And there's nothing wrong with that per se, because as I suppose in an overall sense, that would be true. But contextually, the Apostle Paul identifies in this text what he means by the mind of Christ. He just spells it out if you did not just keep reading. He says, with reference to Christ in verse number 6, who although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bond servant, being made in the likeness of men. What does Paul mean here, contextually, by having the mind of Christ? He means being a servant, because that's the immediate application to the mind of Christ. Who, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal to God, made himself with no reputation, took upon himself the form, and became a servant. And he humbled himself and became obedient to the cross, even, even the death on the cross. This is what it means. And you don't have to look far for an example. John chapter 13 will suffice. When God in the flesh took a towel and girded himself, water in a basin, and stooped down and washed the apostles' feet, a servant, that's what—it wasn't just in word. It wasn't just conceptual. It was in deed and in truth. And Judas is in the room. He washes his feet, too. Oh, but I'm angry now. I don't have to be a servant. Really? You get to cast off Christ because you're angry? Oh, I'm frustrated now. Really?
really? So at frustration is when you get, I didn't know. At frustration, you get to cast off the mind of Christ. No, but I'm grieving now. Yeah, I've suffered loss. I'm so sad for you. You in my prayer. Oh, but in grief, I get to stop being like, no, friend. It's my wedding day. Tell you this, everybody better you. No, sir, ma'am, not on your wedding day, not on your birthday, not at a birth, not at a funeral, nowhere and at no time do you get to cast off the mind of Christ. It never happens. Here is God in the flesh serving. Here is God in the flesh serving his creation. And the Bible enjoins, let this happen. Let this mind be in you. It's interesting the way the Bible words it. It doesn't say God's going to give you the mind of Christ. It doesn't say God's going to force upon you the mind of Christ. It says, let it happen. You let this happen. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Here's the key thought. The way we respond to the mind of Christ manifests what we think about the mind of Christ. Everybody knows Christ was a servant, but not everybody wants to serve. And if many people were to tell the truth, just be, you know, graveyard honest, if they were just to tell the truth, it would go something like this. I can't let Christ's mind be my mind because I think his mind is weak. I think his mind will allow other people to take advantage of me. I think his mind is not strong enough to defend itself. I think his mind doesn't stand up for himself enough, and I've got to stand up for mine. And I've got to be strong, and I refuse to let anybody under any circumstance take advantage of me. And so at the end of the day, I can't have the mind. If Christians were more honest, the way they treat the mind of Christ is not like they don't know what it is. It's not like they don't know what it requires. It's not like they don't know who he was. It's not like we don't know what he did. But at the end of the day, the reality is, I don't want that. And so I will not let this mind be in me. I will not let it govern me. I will not. And so what will we do? We'll fight and we'll argue and we'll fall out. Oh, but you won't find that with Jesus. I don't want his mind. If people would be honest the way they treat the mind of Christ and the way they think about it, if they were more honest, they'd have to say that. Finally, be humble. James chapter 4 is the passage, if you have your Bibles. James chapter 4. James says several things in the book. In fact, it's a great book. You talk about practical application to life and, and living the Christi Christian life. The book of James would be just fantastic for that. So much material rich in this book about living the teachings of Christ out in our lives. He actually begins probably here more uh, to the context. Verse number seven would be a good place to start where he says, submit yourselves to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw nigh to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning, your joy into gloom. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he will exalt you. Humility goes a long way connected to service and servants. Humble yourself. That's number one, humble yourself. And then number two would be in the sight of the Lord. The relationship that we sustain is always first to God. 
and as a result of that relationship, then it branches out to everybody else. And sometimes we get that confused because we get so fixated on each other and the way we're treated and the way we're responding that sometimes both people lose sight of God. And the reality is Scripture keeps drawing us back to you're in this for God first and then for everybody else. And so never let other people convince you, move you to act disproportionately or disobedient to God. You don't allow a fight over here to have you turn against God in your behavior and in your heart. And so James says, humble yourself in the sight of the Lord. We'll come back to James. See this point in Colossians chapter 3. Hold your finger there at James 4. Go over to Colossians 3 and listen to how Paul connects that last thought to relationships. In Colossians chapter 3, again, we go backward to go forward. If we were to go backward, we'd actually start in verse number 1, and you would hear Paul saying, therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, do what? Seek the things above where Christ sits on the right hand of God. That's always the anchoring point. It's Christ, it's God, and it's relationship with Him. But not to go through the first 17 verses, jump over to verse 18 and listen to how Paul makes this application. Wives, be subject to your husbands. Great, biblical, absolutely right. But grab the last phrase, as is fitting in the Lord. Why would a wife be subject to her husband? Because of the Lord. Because of her first subjection to him, and he's the one who told her to do that. And as a result of him telling her, that's why she does it. She is going to be subject to her husband because she's first subject to the Lord. But keep going. Husbands, love your wives and do not be embittered against them. The sister epistle is Ephesians 5, and so if you were to take Ephesians 5 there and see what Paul says about husbands loving your wives, how? As Christ loved the church. Why would I do that? She makes me so angry. She makes me so—and I refuse to talk—so you're bitter? You're going to allow bitterness to grow up, spring up in your heart? No, why not? Because you are loving her the way Christ loved the church. It's always Jesus. He's always the motivation. Why do I want to stay in here and keep working in this? Because of Jesus. Why do I want to keep submitting to this? Because of Jesus. Why do I want to keep loving this? Because of Jesus. Why do I want to obey my parents? Because of Jesus. Why do I want to keep leading and loving my children? Because of Jesus. And he just keeps going on. Children, be obedient to your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing to the Lord. Fathers, do not exacerbate your children so they will not lose heart. Slaves, in all things, obey those who are your masters on earth, not with external services, those merely pleasing men, but with sincerity of heart. How? Fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, do your work heartily. How? As for the Lord rather than for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. It is the Lord Christ whom you serve. Never forget that. In the middle of a fight, middle of anger, frustration, falling out, don't you still serve Christ? Yes. So what's going to come out of my mouth? Well, I'm going to act like Jesus. I'm going to let this mind be in me, which was in Christ Jesus. I'm going to humble myself in the sight of the Lord. And God will exalt. There's a proverb that says, only by pride comes contention. That's generally how it starts. Somebody thought, believes, 
that they were treated in a way that dipped below their threshold of treatment. I have a standard for how you're to treat me. I have a standard for how you're to interact with me. And when you dip below that, my pride kicks in and says, that's too low. I will not accept it. You know what? I will contend with you. Only by pride comes contention. Why are we fighting in the first place? I think more of myself than maybe I ought to think. I think you have no way and no reason to talk. Who do you think you're talking to? That's one of our go-to phrases. Who do you think you're talking to? I mean, you can do that to other people. However, you will not. This is the way we talk, just like Jesus, right? No, that's not how he talked, but that's how we talk. What does the Bible demand? Humble yourself in the sight of the Lord. There's another passage about pride. It goes something like this. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before fall. Often what happens in relationship, and again, it doesn't matter the relationship, and please don't assign a particular side to it. It doesn't matter. This could be children, parents, parents, children, husband, wife, wife, husband, brothers and sisters, sisters, bro it doesn't matter. But typically, here's what I have experienced in talking to people in their frustration and anger. One person in the relationship, regardless of where we are, one person does do what the Bible says. One person humbles themselves and says, okay. That person often apologizes. Even if they didn't exactly do what was wrong, they don't like the way the relationship and the argument is heading, and so to get ahead of it, they'll say, listen, this is not good. Mm -mm. Let's, let's hold on. Let me just apologize for my part in it. Typically, one person humbles himself. Unfortunately, it has this arrangement in that the other person very often interprets that as validation for them being right. And as a result of that, they, in their egotism, they go up and they say, that's right. I knew it all along. I knew it was your fault. I knew it was just a matter of time I can convince you to do that. Now, this happens in relationships, and like so many things in relationships, this begins to set a pattern. This begins to develop a trend. And pretty soon, again, doesn't matter which, another argument will happen, and they will expect that the same thing will happen. And so, the person who is humble and apologizes will humble themselves and apologize. The other person will say, absolutely. Over time, it will seem like this is the only way it can go. Here's what will happen. The person who is humbling themselves and apologizing will eventually lose themselves as, I give up. I don't ever do anything right. It's always my fault. I have no say, no stake here. So fine. It's always me. It's always me. That's what they'll do. The other person, unfortunately, will, in their ego and pride, believe themselves to be right and become more emboldened in their wrong. And they will say, absolutely, you're always wrong. Absolutely, you're always right. I'm always right. And then so off they'll go. Now, if this is two Christians, here's the problem. The Bible doesn't enjoin humility on one Christian in a relationship. It enjoins humility on both Christians in a relationship. The aggressor tends to get more aggressive and more right in his or her haughtiness and rightness, and the apologizer tends to get more downward in this direction. Neither is good. The Bible says, humble yourself. That's the solution. If both people humbled themselves, it would look more like Chip and Dale. I don't know if you're familiar with the little squirrels. 
I'm a cartoon kind of guy, especially the old ones, so I like cartoons. And Chip and Dale would always have each other's best interest at heart. Very often they had a hard time gathering the nuts because they served each other so much and they want to get to the hole. They would say, no, you go first. No, you go first. You go first. You go first. I would never stand in your way. Let me be the one. And they would do this on and on. I just thought, wow. I don't know who wrote that. And obviously squirrels don't really behave like that. But what a concept for human beings that can behave like that. That I would prefer you and you would prefer me. And it eventually, in our service to each other, our care for each other, we'd fix whatever it is, but not when one person refuses to humble themselves ever. Who is to humble themselves? Everybody who is a your and a self. If you are a your and a self, you humble yourself. And if both people do that, and friends, the relationship will get past and be able to deal with whatever comes its way. Here's the key thought. Remember, God is the one you serve and seek to please. And you are in charge of controlling yourself in the relationship and humbling yourself in the presence of God. As we mentioned this morning, Christians are people. And as a result of that, people get angry sometimes. And people disagree sometimes. And sometimes people fight. It's not really a problem per se, but it is what we do in these situations. It's how we respond within these dynamics. And what we must make sure of is it doesn't matter what dynamic I'm in, I'm going to behave like Jesus. I'm going to let the mind of Christ lead my thoughts, my words, and my deeds. I'm not going to look at the other person and demand that they be like Jesus. I'm going to control the only person in any dynamic I can and make sure I'm like Jesus. Paul said, James said, we serve the Lord. And there's never a time when we don't do that. Not a Christian, become one. Become a Christian tonight. All of this is predicated upon the gospel that Jesus came, died for our sins, was buried, and rose the third day. And it is that good news of our redemption, of our salvation, of our ultimately being bought with a price by the blood of Jesus that will allow us to become children of God and allow God through his power and grace and goodness and the example of Christ and the inspiration and revelation of God to change our hearts and our minds. We will not be the same after coming to Jesus. And those things we once did, we won't continue to do them. That is the point of sanctification and growth and maturation. And the more and the closer we get to Jesus, the better we will all be off as a result of having our lives changed by him. If you've never done that, we implore you to become a Christian. There is no hyphenation. It's not something else kind of Christian. It's just Christian. You believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. You repent. You confess the name of Jesus. You are immersed in water, baptized for the forgiveness of sins. Paul refers to it in Colossians 2.12 as the operation of God. He changes us, our hearts, our mind. He cleanses our sins. 
purges our conscience, and we walk in newness of life with him. It's one of the reasons that in James chapter 3, James will say with reference to the behavior of God's children, there are some things that ought not to be. We shouldn't behave like the world. They get angry, we get angry. What we do next ought to be different. Not a member of the Lord's body, not a Christian, become one. If we can help you in any way, we invite you as we stand and as we sing.